Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to be talking poker with Chris Sparks. He is a former top-ranked professional poker player. He's also the host of the Forcing Function podcast, a show where he interviews elite performers to reveal routines, systems, mindsets for achieving world-class performance in business. And you can guess it already in this conversation, Chris is sharing his valuable insights on how the competitive world of poker can teach us valuable lessons in business and in life when it comes to decision-making. And throughout this conversation with Chris, he's going to highlight the power of intuition, decision-making processes, and the value of information in making better choices. We're going to talk about framing negotiations and competitive situations as cooperative efforts. And again, that role of intuition and growing that through experience and reflection. And then also, again, understanding the value of information to be able to use that for decision-making and reducing uncertainty when you're making those decisions. So if those stakes sound interesting to you, let's go all in on this conversation with Chris Sparks. But quickly, I want to remind you, you can go sign up for the companion newsletter to this podcast over at beyondthetodolist.com. Drop your email in. Each week, you'll get an announcement and recap of each latest episodes, links to related episodes you might have missed, exclusive content, as well as my top three weekly finds to supercharge your productivity. It's the perfect companion to this podcast. Again, go to beyondthetodolist.com and drop your email in and make sure you don't miss out. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Chris Sparks. Chris, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Hey, what's up, Eric? Hey, guys. Really glad to be here. So, you know, disclaimer, when we started talking about having you on the show, right from the get-go, I'm like, oh, poker player. All right, how's that productive? Because you can spend a lot of time being, I mean, unless you're making money, um, (laughs) you can be very unproductive (laughs) playing poker. I have been very unproductive playing poker. Although, I would say that that time also wasn't unproductive because it was time spent with friends for the most part. So maybe that's productive in a relational way. 
Give us a little bit more of your backstory here, because I'm, I'm fascinated with all the different things that come to do with poker, whether it's a home game or the championship things or whatever. What's your career been like when it comes to that? Sure. And a good reminder that productivity is a single player game and we define that definition. So hopefully walking away with more than you sat down with. But if relationships, self-growth are values that you aspire to, it can also be a productive experience in that realm. I've always been a gamer. I've played games as long as I can remember. Video games, computer games, board games, games that I invented. I stumbled into poker by the way of online gin, which is a two-player form of rummy. Before then, I was playing online strategy games. This is uh, age 16, and I'm playing free roll tournaments on dial-up internet in our, our family living room. So free roll tournament is you put no money in, but you have the potential to make some uh, sneaker money if you stick around long enough. And I got to university age 17 and Chris Moneymaker had just won the World Series of Poker. So ESPN decided that poker was the new sport. We didn't need the Ocho. So poker was just on TV all the time. You couldn't miss it. And if this is what you wanted to, if you wanted to hang out with your friends in college, you were playing poker as a guy at this time. So I had some experience coming in, both poker directly as well as games generally, and I did pretty well in some small stakes campus games. And some of the players that I played with regularly who I enjoyed playing with, but I didn't have the, the highest level of respect for their playing ability, shared that they were making money playing online poker. And that felt like a good invitation to do so myself. The, well, if these guys can do it, certainly I can do it. This was a way of helping to pay my way through college. I actually wanted to make television commercials when I had grown up. I've always been really fascinated by these intrinsic threads that tie human behavior together. And making television commercials seemed like a great way to influence decision-making at scale. Life had other ideas. I graduated from university in 2008, right at the peak of let's say, the auto industry crisis and just the economic crisis, financial crisis. So I was supposed to start working for Ford and they were on a government-mandated hiring leave. So my 10 to 20-hour-a-week poker hobby, well-paying poker hobby, but still very much a hobby in lieu of sleep most of the time, I decided to see what it would look like to turn that into a full-time career. Fast forward two years later, I was one of the top 20 players in the world. Wow. That's great. I can't even imagine what it would take to be a top 20 player. And in fact, you talk about that. You talk about, you know, leveling yourself up and high performance like you would have to be in those kinds of scenarios to be, you know, a top 20 player. Thinking like a poker player is a phrase that I've heard you say, you know, looking at different things that you're doing. What does thinking like a poker player mean to you? Like, in other words, what does that skill set look like? first inside of the game, and then we'll kind of take it outside of the game and make some corollaries. Sure. The first thing that comes to mind for me is thinking probabilistically, as in we live in a probabilistic universe that's infinitely branching. So what can we be doing to put ourselves in the best possible branches? I think we're hardwired to see the way things exist today as inevitable. It only could have been this way when really our current reality is just one of infinite permutations. 
So I'm always trying to estimate what are the different alternatives that could happen. Given current conditions, what are the potential consequences? And what are the respective probabilities of each of those branches occurring? So what branches are best for me and my goals? What is within my control to increase my likelihood, maximize my odds of being in one of those branches? So I think of this as creating the conditions where my free will is rather limited, but there are conditions in that I am more likely to follow through with the things that I'd like to do. So what can I do now so that my future self is living in that world where those conditions exist? And this concept of expected value is essentially the Bible of poker. It's on average, if I did this at infinite times, what would be the average outcome? And what is the best average outcome given my current circumstances? Is there a way then that I can influence these odds that I have in front of me? So it's always trying to think about what are the probabilities of different things occurring? And then how can I potentially influence those probabilities? Where it's never going to be a hundred zero, but maybe I can take a 50-50 and turn it into a 60-40. And you multiply a number of those out across the, the course of a career and things start to get really interesting. Yeah. There's been many times where I've sat in a game, a hand is over, and then offhandedly someone will say something and somebody else will reply as to why they did what they did. And, and it reflects something along those lines. And, and this is not always the case. Sometimes it's like, nope, not going to say what I had. We're just, I'm not going to give away my, because them giving away their thought process kind of then gives you insight into what they may or may not do next time. They may be giving away something and maybe completely faking it as to almost psych you out, bluff you in a non game actually happening in the, at that, you know, a hand actually playing at the time kind of a way. I've had to be careful both ways with that. But it usually comes down to hearing them say something along the lines of, well, I knew based on what they did that this was happening and so on. And, so, and I knew what I had. And it's very interesting in the moment. Everything that we do is telling a story and language is incredibly revealing if you're willing to listen. So there's two things that people are telling you at the poker table. Oftentimes, and you'll be surprised how often this is the case, people will respond exactly with what they're thinking and feeling if you ask them directly. And this is an opportunity to reverse engineer their thinking process, as you put it. How do they think about the game? And how do they think about risk management? How do they think about life? What's going on in their life right now? And how is that affecting their decision making? And you can take these pieces of information and extrapolate them to predict how they're going to act in different situations or which situations will be relatively beneficial for you and have a relative advantage. The other side is people are always very image conscious. Occasionally they, they let their guard down, but they're always trying to portray a certain image of themselves. Think about an improv land. This is you're continuously playing with status. Are you raising your own status or are you downplaying your status relative to others? So what people are trying to portray about themselves tells a great deal about how they want to be seen. And this is a bit of their ego fixation, which you can play with. So how do they dress? How do they talk? What's their style of betting? Do they, when they have different mannerisms that people would refer to as tells that are often noise, what is the story that they're trying to tell? And is that story coherent? 
And in a lot of ways, poker is a game of asymmetric information. You're continuously trying to take in more than you're giving out. And you sort of extrapolate this to life and that there's amazing detail coming at you all the time. The majority of it is noise, but buried in those haystacks, there's a lot of signal. And so if you know what to pay attention to, there's an incredible amount to learn and to grow from. Yeah. And what you're getting at here, I think, is some people would be referring to that normally as reading people. You mentioned the word tell. That's often one of the only things people know about poker other than the phrase all in. It's interesting to me how much of a not just a game of skill or a game of decision making, but a game of interaction. And you said asymmetrical. I like that, that it's, you know, it's about communication, but it's always giving less than you're getting in. And you're trying to absorb those verbal and nonverbal cues. When it comes to reading people, again, I think that translating this out into real world decision making, often we're told, no, you want to give the person that's helping you make the decision as much information as you possibly can. That almost seems opposite of poker. What's your take on that? I think there's a situational awareness that needs to happen. So poker is a negative sum game or a zero sum game in that you're directly competing over the pie. And my belief is that in business and in life, there are many opportunities to play positive sum games where you take a competitive game and you turn it into a cooperative game. Thinking about the frame with which you're viewing things or the metaphors that you use Can you turn what feels like an adversarial negotiation into a cooperative, we're on the same side of the table? That has the opportunity for both sides to get what they want by just being on the same side, at least in terms of, you know, using we language rather than us against them. And in those cases, being very direct with what are your non-negotiables in this case, what you're looking out of that can allow you to cut to the chase much faster, have to dance around things. So it's so situationally dependent and trying to think about, well, what are our goals? What are the overlaps of those goals? How do we see the world similarly versus differently? And looking for the places that we overlap versus diverge and trying to come up with solution that both people feel good about. Because the vast majority of situations in life are we refer to as iterated games in that this is not a single interaction, but if this business deal, this relationship goes well, we'll have many opportunities to collaborate in the future. This is an incredible mindset to go through life that everyone you encounter is a potential best friend or partner in your business or someone you can collaborate with for the rest of your life. And you create the conditions for that to be so by treating it as a potential win-win interaction. So the things that cross over from poker are more of a situational awareness is what is the game that we're even playing? And it's surprising how few people even take a breath to think about that. Yeah, that's very interesting that you asked that question because if you were to go about it from a strict poker mentality and treated every other real-world scenario that way, you'd always be walking into each scenario with the mindset that, well, I have to get all of the pie here, and no, and that means no one else can, and that's just not how life works, in other words. In some places it does, but for the most part, there are so many opportunities that are missed if we're looking at everybody else as a competitor. 
the higher you get up in terms of levels, the limiting factor your speed limit becomes access. This is extremely true in poker and that poker is a game of musical chairs and that there are fewer seats than people who would like to play in that game. If it's a very good, lucrative game, there are lots of players who would like to play, usually only nine seats. So who get those seats? The people who add the most value on a continuing basis. And that is a lot how life works is people like doing business with their friends, people they trust, respect, like hanging out with. And so if you can be that type of person who's always adding value, you have the best opportunity to have a seat. And the mindset of I'm going to try to extract everything I can out of this interaction ensures that you are going to be excluded from future games. Yeah, I just couldn't help but think of people who are networkers. Not as much these days because the business card is less and less seen, but it used to be, you know, in the heyday of going to conferences, it was the handshake with the card in it that gives it to you. It's like, hey, I'm not seeing you as a person. I'm seeing you as a transaction. Yeah, when we used to host dinners at our place pre-pandemic, that was a hard rule is if we saw someone give a business card or found a business card the, the day after you were banned. We are not here for transactional relationships. Wow, that's a great rule. I love that rule. What other skills are encompassed in that mindset of thinking like a poker player in the game itself? So many places I could go here. Where where my mind goes if we try to make a direct parallel to productivity is understanding where your strengths are. So in poker, they are just going to be parts of the game tree that you've studied more. So those are the parts of the game that you want to be playing. The same thing if you realize that you have really great experience within one vertical or you have a certain set of skills that to your peers, it looks like you're just running up the wall. They can't even understand how you could do such a thing. Do more of that. I think we can fall into the trap of being obsessed with our perceived efficiencies, the things that we want to improve. This classic self-improvement trap of, I need to improve the way that I'm improving. And when I work with clients, it's always trying to uncover what are the things that just come incredibly naturally to you that you're really good at that like just are easy? How can we find ways to do more of that? So when I'm at the poker table, it's all right. I know I do these things really well. How can I create situation that those things I do well come up more often? And this is a similar thing to founder market fit is we're talking about playing the right game seated at the right table. Are you competing or hopefully cooperating in the place that fits your own personality experience set of skills? Because you can only play one game. So choose wisely. Yeah, that makes sense. So then obviously there's this whole, it's not literally a metaphor, but the skill set that comes out of leaning into thinking like a poker player then applies to not just life decisions, but business decisions and home and work decisions, et cetera. From my personal experience playing poker, I know that emotion can be a component in decision-making in real life, but especially for me in poker. Like, if I'm not having a good night, I just kind of slowly spiral a little bit to where I'm just, like, phoning it in, so to speak, and I just kind of give up. What's your take on that as a component to decision-making? Sure. So we've discussed that language is very revealing and it's powerful. 
And we have these internal stories, narratives that we're telling ourselves that shape our experience and bias our decision making. So you shared one of, I'm not having a good night. And this is not a fact, but an opinion. But we start to treat it as a fact, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now that we're trapped within this story of I'm not having a good night, there's lots of things that naturally flow from that where we can kind of bucket all other future decisions under this umbrella. Well, it just wasn't my night. And we've almost written it off and kind of want to lose at that point just to prove ourselves right. So it really starts with a sensitivity to narrative. A really important point is that time does not exist in this sense. Like this is something that we've made up intersubjectively. There's no such thing as a good day, a good month, a good quarter. That's completely arbitrary. It's all one long life, one long session, as we say in poker. And we try to approach it as we're starting from zero every moment. The P&L is zero. Our bank balance is zero. Our poker session, we're not up or down. We are starting from scratch, a blank slate. And that means that every decision is the opportunity to make a perfect decision. As soon as we get stuck in these narratives of I'm losing, then it's you become seeking. You try to make up for lost time. You get sloppy. So that's why you're continuously trying to bring yourself back to zero because these narratives are happening every moment. But the reframe there is that every moment is the opportunity to reset. So I think the first step is awareness. Being aware of these internal narratives that are happening. I think there's this illusion that poker players or people who are leading at the top level are almost robotic. That they're this idea of rational is that they're, they're emotionless. They're approaching things like an algorithm. And that just doesn't line up with anything we've learned in neuroscience that emotion is inseparable from decision making. So we don't want to deny our emotions. We need to be aware of them and then we need to accept them. This is a really important step because denial is, is almost treating as like, Oh, this is bad. Like I'm being bad right now. I'm tilting. I'm like procrastinating. Well, all of these emotions are just signals from your subconscious. And if you treat them as that they're important messengers who have important things to tell you, you might learn something. So accept them without agenda. Say, huh, that's interesting. This day of poker is not going very well. And I'm starting to feel feelings of frustration. And I'm a little bit angry that I came here and played when I didn't get enough sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And once you start to become curious about these emotions where subject becomes object rather than I am frustrated, I am angry, you would disidentify and you look for them from the outside, they slowly start to dissipate. It's interesting. Once you look at something, it no longer has that strength. So by accepting, all of a sudden, you realize that there's not really any emotion left. And then it becomes compassionate action. And the compassion is really important. So in poker, many times, I'm not playing my A game. And if I fail to accept, then I'm just going to try to push through and I'll often go on and to make worse decisions. But sometimes the compassionate action is to walk away. If I'm gentle, if I've accepted where I am, I can make that best decision. So the important thing to realize is that these emotions, these stories and narratives are happening all the time. So can we listen? Can we accept? 
And given that acceptance, can we take the next compassionate action that's going to best position us for success in the future? Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays? What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to shopify magic your ai powered all-star sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond again go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond Now, obviously, you're a performance coach, and I think you probably are suggesting to a lot of different people, to put it bluntly, hey, you lack self-awareness. That's your Achilles heel here. How do you how do you bring that up with somebody, especially if they don't have self-awareness? How can you help them hear that slash then walk them through, if it's not a skill they have normally, adopting that skill and honing it again? It's one of those things where, you know, you want to lean into your strengths, but if their weakness is self-awareness, well, that's really a a self-sabotaging weakness that to a certain extent has to be, you know, we got to fix that hole in the, in the boat. The limiting factor in coaching and leadership is always buy-in. So first step with anyone, friend, client, significant other, child is having their buy-in, you know, trust that you have their best interests at heart, that perhaps being an outside third-party observer, you're seeing things that they might be too close to see. And perhaps the willingness to take an uncomfortable look at their beliefs and their way of doing things with the possibility of seeing things differently. If you don't have that, you're not going to go anywhere. The hard part about self-awareness is that when we don't have it, we don't realize that we don't have it. So trying to be a mirror for someone. It tends to not go well. Perhaps someone uh, has had this experience before. If you tell someone, I think you're wrong, or, you know, maybe you're not seeing this the right way. 
Instead, what I try to do is to reflect back what they're saying in such a way that they agree that I have it down, right? Some form of, of paraphrasing. And then we try to work backwards. If this is the belief, what are the assumptions that are supporting that belief? Like, if this is true, what else must be true? And trying to surface some of these assumptions, we might be able to cast a light on some of these assumptions that have not been validated. As we were saying before, some things that are being treated as fact that are really opinion. So looking at some of these invalidated assumptions, I might suggest a gentle experiment, something that they could do that could validate or invalidate this assumption. And that way, through some experience, there might be a shift in underlying belief that hopefully will lead to a change in lasting behavior. But you can never tell someone to change or tell someone that they're wrong. You can only encourage them to re-examine their beliefs by taking some sort of behavior that'll cause this dissonance. Right? If you guys are familiar with cognitive dissonance, it's like, well, I believe this one thing, but I'm bumping up against reality over here and it's telling me a different thing. So which is it? Is it, am I right or is reality right? Well, reality is probably going to be right. Reality is very hard to argue against. So that's why I'm so big on experiments is this creates the opportunity to validate some of these assumptions and hopefully to approach what we would call truth. Now, this plays in a little bit to oftentimes, not only in poker, but in life when making decisions, we don't have all the information and we'd like to have more, but we either can't or we've done as much investigating or research as we can. How does that play out in terms of making right decisions in both of those scenarios with limited information? Absolutely. Yeah, that's life, making decisions with incomplete information. There's a really valuable concept of value of information. Information is valuable in proportion to how much it reduces your uncertainty. I know that's a bit of a mouthful. It's like there are many things that we could do to support ourselves in making a better decision. Some of those things are going to have a greater impact. So that's a form of an experiment is who could you talk to? What research could you do? You know, talk to some customers, do a very soft beta launch, some sort of form of cheap experiment that has a very high value of information because it has the potential to change your belief. This is especially valuable the more uncertain you are because there's potential for greater change. So that's really what is trying to decompose a bet. Now, poker is all about making bets. I think life is all about making great bets. How do you decompose a bet into its component parts? And if you look at those component parts, you say, which part of this decision am I least certain about? And you pull that out and you say, all right, what could I do to become a little bit more certain here? And it's not that you're trying to, you know, go into your cave and have this fever dream and come out with an epiphany. No, you're continually finding creative ways to bump up against reality and slowly, iteratively increase your certainty so that you can make better decisions, particularly if it's reversible. You'd rather be in the arena than in the, I don't know, in the classroom trying to come up with this perfect theory. So 
yeah, I'm, I'm really trying to encourage my clients, my friends to take some form of small action that's going to give them some information to make a better decision. Something that you hinted at earlier, which I've seen very commonly, particularly for entrepreneurs and business owners, is that they have common cognitive distortions. It seems that the personality type that goes out and starts something new when most of your friends, family, and culture is telling you, no, that's impossible, you can't do that, tends to have common distortions in the way they see the world. And a very common one that entrepreneurs, business owners have is all or nothing thinking, also known as black and white thinking. Like either the world is completely black or the world is completely white. Either this is the amazing best idea I've ever heard or this is terrible and whoever brought it up is a complete idiot. The beauty is that there are lots of gray in the middle. A client that I I love throwing under the bus in interviews, uh, sorry, came to me with this black or white type of decision. He's like, well, I'm stuck. I just got a term sheet from venture capitalists for $50 million for my startup. But I've been really getting into spirituality and I'm wondering if I should just sell all my possessions and go live in an ashram instead. What should I do? Should I take the $50 million or should I shave my head and become a monk? And, you know, gently trying to explain There's a lot of opportunity in between those options. You're thinking about just A and B. Let's talk about C, D, E through Z. And perhaps what are a couple things that you could do that could increase your certainty about the path that'd be more interesting to you? What value are you optimizing for? Let's say we're talking again in three to five years. Which option are you most happy about? Let's say that we're talking in three to five years and like, man, that was a really big detour. I wasted a lot of time. What option are we talking about? And these are all just different ways, angles of approach to try to decompose this bet into its component parts and take what feels like a really big life-changing decision into, hey, why don't you meditate a few times this week and see how you feel? Hey, um, you know, maybe talk to your other friends who've raised really large VC rounds and see what their day-to-day looks like. And this becomes actionable. And hopefully through these conversations and really small experiments, experiences, they can get some more clarity and conviction about the path forward. It almost connects back a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, to probability. And I think you called it probabilistic thinking when you're kind of analyzing, you know, what's the probability? And and there's a lot of different possibilities. You know, a lot of things are possible. Not all things are probable. What's the probability of all these different options? It seems like that comes into play here, too, a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, there's a beautiful concept in investing called hurdle rate. So organizations have this problem is how can we agree on the threshold that, yes, we go forward with an investment? We need some sort of objective figure that beyond which, yes, we do, right? So kind of like expected rate of return. If we expect to make, say, 10% beyond inflation, then yes, we invest in the new plant and the new product line. If the models say that we can't make that much, then no, we don't. The opportunity cost is too high. And I think there is a hurdle rate on decisions that we should have in mind. But I think of this more as like a confidence level. What is the confidence level that I need to reach in order to move forward? Right. Going back to I'm progressively reducing uncertainty to get to the necessary confidence level. Some decisions like, hey, should I make chicken or fish for dinner? 
you probably need a pretty low confidence level because the stakes are very low. If it's, hey, should I go to grad school or start a company? Hey, should I have kids? Should I move to this new city? Perhaps you're going to want a higher threshold of confidence. So something that I'll do with clients is I'll just ask them, zero to 100%, what's your current level of confidence today? Let's say they're coming in at 60%. Well, the easy example is, you know, do you move to a new city or do you stay where you are? You're at 60%, but they would need to hit 90% in order to, to make the big move. So I'm like, okay, you're at 60%. What new information could you learn that would take you up to 70%, let's say? I'm in New York. They're thinking about moving to New York. We're like, well, you know, New York's really dirty and expensive. You know, what if we went and visit and we found a neighborhood that's clean? And you know, we look at a couple apartments and we find out that they're actually within our budget. Well, that would increase our confidence. So, all right, well, you're at 60%. Well, let's say that you went down to 50%. What new information could you learn? And the opposite would be true. Hey, we looked at apartments and we couldn't find anything that wasn't completely falling apart in our budget. Or we were looking for jobs and the salary increase wasn't enough to make up for the increased cost of living. Right? So you start to break down here are the different things that we could discover that would make this a decision, either a no-brainer, go ahead, or a hard pass. And it's not like we need to sit down and think harder about it. It's how can we move? What can we do in order to surface this information that will make this decision easy for us? It turns something that's really abstract and makes it actionable. What you just said is making me think of words that oftentimes are brought into the mix when it comes to talking about decision-making, words like instinct or gut that make it feel like, you know, it's outside of skill. It's just, I just know because I know. What you're saying is, and I think it's akin to that, is that raising your confidence level or getting and gathering more information is increasing or confirming, I guess, maybe your gut. What do you see as the symbiosis between, and maybe you don't like those words. I don't know. I'd love to hear. When people throw out decision-making and words like intuition and gut and instinct, how does that factor into your decision-making rubric, I guess? I have very strong opinions here. First, I'll give the positive case, and then I'll give the negative. So when people say intuition, what I hear is internalized experience. For example, I've been playing poker for 20 years. My intuition when it comes to most things poker is very well honed. On the other hand, I'm just thinking randomly, I could see the kitchen in the background. I spent very little time in the kitchen. So if you threw me in a three-star Michelin restaurant and just put a bunch of ingredients together, I could intuitively whip up a dish, but it might not be very good because I don't have very much experience there. So this is what the science tells us is the more experience you have in an area, the more you should feel empowered to trust your intuition. And where people go astray is they take their experience and very strong positive record in one area, and they expand this zone of genius, at least perceived genius, to areas that perhaps they don't have that same level of experience. And they wonder why they get a bunch of egg on their face. Like, hey, maybe you shouldn't have been in the kitchen to start with. So I really do think that intuition is a thing. For those of you guys who don't know my my poker background, I'm most known as an online player. And in my heyday, I was playing up to 30 games simultaneously, which means that I'm making a decision every second for sometimes 12, 15 hours. And obviously, this is not 
system two thinking. This is very intuitive system one, like reading the matrix and just reacting. But I couldn't do that from day one. You can only do this after you've played two million hands and you know what to look for and you know what mostly you can ignore. And that's that internalized experience is there are so many things that I'm taking in subconsciously. Our best guess is that it's a million to one ratio, the bits of information we can process subconsciously versus consciously. I'm taking it all in, but I'm very, very careful about what I choose to pay attention to. And that's intuitive. And a lot of times, if I'm trying to verbalize that, because I'm trying to describe an infinite concept with a finite amount of words, I might steer myself astray. You see this sometimes where people try to justify a decision, they end up talking themselves out of it. You know, think first thought, best thought. Sometimes your best impulse is going to be the best one, but, you know, trust but verify. You can, you can validate some of those assumptions later. So yes, I am very, very big on calibrating my intuition. So how do you calibrate your intuition is you trust it, but then you verify it. Hey, that person over there looks like someone I really want to talk to. Great. Immediately walk over. Five seconds. No hesitation. I go over and talk. Wow, this is an amazing interaction. In fact, they had just saw my conversation with Eric and they've been hoping we had the opportunity to have a conversation. Or no, actually, uh, he was really deep in conversation and I interrupted their flow and I got the signals wrong. So if I trust that and I get a positive feedback from reality, great. I know I can trust that my intuition in these situations even more, which allows me to move faster, which allows me to get more information, which allows me to move faster, right? Positive feedback loop. If I get feedback that, hey, maybe I'm not very well calibrated in this area, maybe I'm not the amazing chef that I thought I was, well, I can step back and say, well, do I really want to be cooking? If so, how can I train that? How can I get more experience so that my intuition is better better calibrated so I can move forward next time? So that's that's really the missing part. A lot of people for intuition is that calibration response is taking in that feedback and saying, hey, were my assumptions about how that was going to go correct? And that's the wonderful thing about simulation is that you don't need reality to make the mistake. You say, all right, I'm going to predict what's going to happen here. I invested in this company and they said they're going to hit these metrics in three months. And three months later, uh, they haven't done anything. Huh. Maybe that I should calibrate my intuition here on what's possible in three months. All right. We're continuously having feedback on our bets. And then we're feeding that back into the system on our underlying assumptions. So yes, calibrate your intuition. Intuition is a thing, but make sure you close that loop. On the other hand, if you make a decision intuitively and someone asks you, hey, like, how'd you know to do that? And you're like, I don't know, man. It just, just felt right. How do you replicate that? That's the problem is like, if it's not some sort of externalized process, how is that success repeatable? So. Anything that I do, I try to get it out of my head onto a page. And anytime I'm in that situation, I review that process and I make one tiny change to it so that my blueprint, my playbook for anything that I do, especially making decisions in a particular vertical, I'm continually iterating and improving upon. Like, what were the things that I thought were important that turned up not mattering at all? What were the things that weren't even my realm of possibilities that occurred. What are the things that I probably should have paid closer attention to had I known? Well, if I have some sort of process, I can log these things down and then I'm not paying tuition for those mistakes multiple times. But like, I don't know, man, I just go with my gut. 
Well, you're never going to improve that way. Obviously, there's also the factor of anybody who's making a lot of decisions and then sees what the outcome is. There's always a a carrying forward of that experience as data for future decisions. How do we bounce back from failure or mistakes, et cetera, in decision making and then bring that experience with us into the future to make better decisions? There's no such thing as failure, only lessons. I use an experimental framing. I'm continuously trying things and I get feedback from reality on how that went. There's no such thing as a failed experiment, only unexpected experimental results. I thought this thing was going to go the way that I would have liked. It didn't. What did I miss? What could I have done differently? When I'm in a similar situation, what am I going to do differently next time? How am I going to change my process? And the wonderful thing about process is that it's not personal. It's not that I failed. I was unable to create the necessary conditions for success. But knock on wood, I'm going to have many other opportunities the next time to ensure that I don't keep paying tuition over and over again for that same mistake. That makes sense. Chris, I'd love for you to share more about where people can find out more about what it is you're doing and how they can benefit from what you're doing, your coaching. I think you've got courses too, just all of that good stuff. I'd love to get people connected to you. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate the call out. And I really hope what comes across is how much I love and enjoy exploring these topics and trying to share a few things that I've been fortunate enough to learn over the years that seem to generalize well for other high performers. I sometimes feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world is all day I just get to talk to really smart and successful people and try to figure out what it is that seems to work for them and then try to turn that into some form of principle process and open source it on conversations like this one. So if you've enjoyed some of the things that I've had to say today, there's a few places I'd love to point you if you'd like to learn more. There's some articles on my website, which is forcingfunction.com that you can check out. I also created a 90-page workbook that is a summary of my best practices for all things productivity and performance. So time management, habits and routines, learning, optimizing your schedule, goal setting, all these types of things with step-by-step instructions on how you can implement these into your own life and career. You can download that for free. Just search for Experiment Without Limits. I have a performance assessment that I created to try to solve this problem that I think myself and many others have is there are so many things that we could do to improve, to grow our businesses, to become the type of person who can achieve our own ambitious goals. So this is 20 questions that I hope will change your life by servicing your greatest opportunity to improve your productivity and performance. You take that at forcingfunction.com slash assessment. You do so, I will send you a personalized recommendation on what I think is your best opportunity for upgrading. The last thing that I would share is I primarily only work with high performers. So these are business owners, CEOs, portfolio managers, so hedge fund managers, bunch of capitalists, and traders. I only work with 12 people at a time, so I'm generally at capacity, but I love, 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 and I really mean do this, love having the opportunity to learn about what other people are doing, and if I can, potentially making an impact. So highly encourage you to reach out. Any questions, any feedback that I can give you on your own processes, I'd love to hear from you. My email is chris at forcingfunction.com. 
Perfect. And I'll make sure to list all those things in the show notes for this episode. So if somebody's out doing something and just listening and can't write or click, they can always reference that back on the site at beyondthetodolist.com. Chris, it's been great talking with you. I know we could probably talk for more hours than we have, but that just means in the future we'll have to chat again. So thank you so much for sharing and for being here. An honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for inviting me, Eric. I had a blast. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Chris Sparks as much as I did. I love talking poker. I love playing poker. But all that said, there's a lot to learn here, and there's a lot to learn over at his show, the Forcing Function Hour podcast, linked up in the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. That's also where you can drop your email in to sign up for the companion newsletter of this podcast. Again, each week you'll get an announcement and recap of each latest episode, any of the pertinent links that were mentioned in the episode, exclusive content, as well as my top three weekly finds that will supercharge your productivity. Again, that's over at beyondthetodolist.com. While you're there, if you found this episode helpful, think of that one person you know would be interested in this or needs to hear it. Hit the share button there or do it right now in your podcast player app of choice where you're listening. Thank you so much for doing me that favor and sharing this episode. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.